This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Kirsty Melville here with the History Listen. In 1867, three children vanished near the rural Victorian town of Dalesford in a mystery that gripped the Australian colonies for months. And as philosopher Patrick Stokes discovers, echoes of this case continue to haunt the people of Dalesford today. On a clear, cold Sunday in June 1867, three little boys wander away from their home near the town of Dalesford on Judgewoodung country in central Victoria. The oldest of the boys, William Graham, is only six and a half. His brother Thomas is just four. With them is their friend and neighbour, Alfred Berman, aged five. The boy's journey ends in a hollow tree, here on a hillside in Musk, just southeast of Dalesford. Today the tree is gone, but there's a roadside memorial cairn covered in flowers and toys. People that come here are not really the locals. They're people from other places. Well, people looking for something. I get a lot of people here that have um, lost something. I had a lady here just a few weeks ago who brought her husband's ashes. And she said, oh, we like going to this place every now and and again, and it had a feeling to it. And she said, I didn't know what to do with the ashes. And he liked it here, so we put it under the tree over there. The memorial is tended by one of the neighbours, actress and local historian Yvonne Fix. So um, I came along in 1984, came down here. I started mowing uh, either sides of the thing, and then uh, I came down here and saw the, um, the can in amongst the blackberries. And I said, hmm, what's that? There's two of these cans in town. Every year, a memorial scholarship is awarded in the boy's name at the local primary school. And if you're feeling fit, you can do the Three Lost Children Walk, a 16-kilometre trek that retraces their steps, starting from the Lost Children Reserve. In 2017, on the 150th anniversary of the boys' disappearance, an original stage play about the case, Hollow, was staged at Dalesford Town Hall. Hollow was the work of Ballarat playwright Megan J. Rydell. So I like bushwalking and I was living in Bendigo and I was just looking for like local walks. Came across the Three Lost Children walk and picked up a brochure, I think, about it, which had a little spiel about the children and their disappearance and why the walk existed. And at the time I was pregnant with my second child and this idea of what would it feel like if you were the mother of these children just got stuck in my head. Why did this very local misfortune make news not just throughout the Australian colonies, but around the world at the time. 
And why is it still so woven into the physical and civic landscape of what's now a trendy spa town? I always say that geology and history are connected in important ways. Dr Ben Wilkie is an historian with an interest in the relationship between Victorian geography and history. Once all the surface gold was collected in the Dalesford area, the miners turned to quartz mining. And economically speaking, that kind of mining, it's a big project. It's the sort of work that employs a lot of people and can support a township. The population grows, the economy diversifies, immigration schemes are developed that try to balance an overly male population on the goldfields to bring in more families and women. And Victorian towns like Dalesford begin to look a little bit more normal in terms of their demographics. But there's still places where there are diverse identities that, that have to be accommodated if people are going to get along. This was a time where these communities are still finding their way as communities. Among the people thrown together by these economic and geological forces in the aftermath of the Victorian gold rush were two families who became neighbours at Connell's Gully on the northwest side of Dalesford, the Grahams and the Bermans. As local Yvonne Fix explains, they came from very different walks of life. William Graham Senior, he came from Scotland and he came over to Australia and went to the Castlemaine goldfields. The um, Burmans were a different type of uh, people because um, he had been a soldier over in Canada and had broken the rules over there, so they offed him over to Tasmania. He met and married a girl that was um, the daughter of a, an ex-convict. That, that was two strikes against, against them before they even started. Around 9am on Sunday the 30th of June, 1867, Thomas and William Graham and Alfred Berman set out from home with another boy named Griffiths. It was reported at the time that they were looking for wild goats, but nobody really knows for sure. The two Grahams, one was nearly seven and the other one was just four, and Mum had said, you know, look after, look after your little brother. And, of course, the, the Berman boy, the five-year-old, he was the last of the, the, all the boys and he got all these hand-me-downs, whereas the Grahams tended to be fairly well-dressed. They got, uh, got down to the creek and apparently they, uh, they weren't supposed to cross the creek. The three boys were going because the oldest boy said, oh, come on, let's go. And the fourth boy said, no, I'm not allowed to. So that's why he went back. For such small children, over the next few hours, the boys cover a prodigious distance. They weren't seen from when they crossed the creek until about two o'clock in the afternoon. So they've left at nine o'clock in the morning and it's been uh, two o'clock in the afternoon and they've reached the Balan Road. So they've been, they haven't been taking a straight course. They've been mucking around. Sometime between one and two o'clock, the boys meet a man named John Mutch on the Balan Dalesford Road, about four miles south of town. Three months later, Mutch will describe what happens next to an official inquest held in Dalesford's Farmer's Arms Hotel. The examination of John Mutch of Telegraph Road, taken on oath this 16th day of September, 1867, at Dalesford before me, James McNichol. I noticed that two of them were dressed alike. The other one had a tear in his trousers. 
I told them they were in the wrong road and I accompanied them a quarter of a mile in the right road and before leaving told them to keep to the telegraph wire till they came to Leggett's. I saw them proceed in the right road towards Dalesford. This is the last I have seen of the children. And as soon as he was out of sight, uh, they changed direction again. Because the, the oldest boy, he was an adventurous fellow. Uh, if he was around nowadays, they'd try and stick a label on him, you know, because he was, he was fearless and things like that. But you have to think of what the children were like back then. They had to grow up fast. They had to be self-sufficient. And because there were so many children dying, if you got to your fifth birthday, you were, you were pretty good. And then you had to toughen up. From the moment Much encounters the lost children, the people of Dalesford find themselves both following and writing one of the most important scripts of 19th century colonial life. As academics like Kim Tawney and late Peter Pierce have noted, children lost in the bush is one of the most enduring tropes in the Australian cultural imaginary. Anna, look at them! These real-life tragedies found expression in everything from Henry Lawson to Dot and the Kangaroo. Without their shoes! And of course, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mama, wait! Wait for me! Please wait! And while children got lost in all settler colonial societies, only in Australia did this become such a defining image. Whatever can those people be doing down there? At one level, at a surface level, uh, that image represents the actual phenomenon of children losing their way in the bush, which is a very real threat. Dr Joanne Faulkner is a philosopher who works on the significance of childhood in post-colonial Australia. But also a, a modern meaning of the child is that it represents the future. And narratives of uh, colonial Australia um, often foreground the precarity of the future of uh, white people, of, of colonists, in a harsh environment. And there are so many, you know, works of art and literature and films that represent the lost child. I think that the reason it has this currency is that it speaks to the very being of settler colonial presence in Australia. This image kind of recognises, in a really coded way, a sense of not belonging or an anxiety about belonging and of being being lost, displaced. Having ignored John Mutcher's advice to follow the Telegraph Road north back into Dalesford, the boys instead head east, towards the gold diggings at Specimen Hill, south of town. I'm at Specimen Hill, just near the edge of the Wombat State Forest. At about 4pm, the boys appeared here where an older boy named Quinn saw them. The second boy had a cap with a blue velvet round the side. He had knickerbockers on. The little one had a big cap on and his heel out of his shoe. I asked them where they were going. They said they were going to Table Hill. I told them they were going the wrong road and were not going to Table Hill. I got hold of the eldest boy and he said, I know my way. He commenced to cry. And I went into Mr Franklin's house. Mr Franklin came out and spoke to the children. He told the children you were going the wrong way. 
With that, the children ran away, following the road going to the bush away from Bellsford. I did not see the boys again. John Quinn was John only Quinn, ten, and he was working. He was working for a neighbour who uh, called himself Benjamin Franklin. Now the whole thing is Benjamin. There was a lot of Benjamins around, so we're not sure whether he made it up because he was an ex-con and he wanted to keep keep a low profile. I was sitting in the hut with my wife about three o'clock. The boy Quinn came in and said there were three stray boys on the hill and he thought they might be lost. I went out and did not see them for they were out of sight. I never told anyone that I had seen the deceased children. If the boy Quinn swore today that I saw and spoke to the lost children, he swore what was not true. Benjamin Franklin, Testimony, 19 September 1867. Perhaps Franklin had his own reasons for wanting to stay out of the story. But this shifting of blame may reflect emerging social rules about what to do if you came across lost children. The reality is that no society can sort of reproduce itself effectively without looking after the young. Tim Calabria is an historian who works on the 19th century Australian lost children phenomenon. What you find is that after a few almost spontaneous events where a child goes missing and everyone really bands together and, and looks for the child, what, what you find is that these stories really, I guess they pick up in the popular imagination. You, you see uh, newspapers writing about it and then the story popping up again and again and being recirculated. And then as people kind of imbibe these stories, they, I guess that's how they internalise, how they know what to do, what's expected of them. And often that gets articulated by the people who don't do what they're supposed to. So John Quinn rushed into his mother's. Now, she got vilified at the at the inquest because she'd had a, a sick child and uh, she'd been looking after this sick child and this child died two weeks later. He said, they're lost. And she said, well, I can't, I can't come or something like that because we never know what they really said. Uh, so when he came out again, they disappeared. Shortly after the boys run away from Specimen Hill, the weather turns. As the children head deeper into the bush towards Musk, the coldest night in 20 years sets in. Back in Dalesford, the Grahams and Bermans have already raised the alarm. Despite the foul weather, the town has some cause for optimism. Just three years earlier, the colony had been gripped by the rescue of three different missing Victorian children, the Duffs. The Duff children who went missing near Horsham in Victoria in uh, 1864. And they were feared dead. They were found after nine days and they were lost through winter. Uh, so it's quite a harsh environment for the, these three children. Uh, and when they were found, um, the, the middle child, the daughter Jane, famously was covering her two brothers with her skirts. What this kind of represented to the colonials, this, this kind of protection she offered the, the boys with her skirts, was this, uh, this kind of celebration of her ability to, I guess, uh, terraform the bush as a home for her brothers. So it was an act of homemaking and this kind of uh, capacity of Australian womanhood to domesticate the bush and to create a scene of belonging for settlers there. 
the streets were empty. The men went out about, they started off at six o'clock in the morning. They'd gather at uh, the Specimen Hill Mine at uh, by eight o'clock and then they would go off on, on different directions. The women and children were, were left because they, they, they weren't allowed, uh, you know, weren't to, to go into things like that. And it must have been awful. Failure only increased the excitement and on Tuesday evening, sympathy for the parents and the poor children caused an agitation here like that of some great public calamity. Everyone inquired of his neighbour whether tidings had been received of the children and the least scrap of information respecting them was eagerly welcomed. The expression on the public face was as if each one had sustained a personal bereavement. Dalesford Express, July 4, 1867. In the week that follows, almost every store in Dalesford is shut. Sawmillers give up the day's wages to join the search. Men search all day. The community gather to hear the news and strategize every night. Perhaps the townsfolk are dimly aware that the search isn't just about the children, as Ben Wilkie and Tim Calabria explain. It's also about them. Historians have this idea that they like of imagined communities. And this is the idea that people from diverse backgrounds with nothing to do with each other, almost nothing in common, can kind of create a sense of community by sharing something, no matter small it might be. So the search for lost children, for example, is a fantastic example of a kind of shared purpose that might bring people together to form a community. When you look at what unites communities, what makes them feel like they're together, a big part of that is people feeling like the same things are more important to them than the everyday things. And one of those things in this case is a threatened child. And when the child went missing, people really did stop everything they were doing because it was more important. And it became mandated, uh, especially in Dalesford, that everyone had to stop business. Suddenly it was the town's child and that was how people felt. The townspeople knew from stories like the survival of the Duff children that this script could have a joyous ending. But other parts of that script are more troubling for the settler colonial mindset. To get their children back from the land, they must rely on the very people who had been dispossessed of it. Three children lost in the Bullerock Forest, near here since 30th June, have asked for black trackers from Ballarat and Creswick, none to be had. Mr Parker, late of Aboriginal Station near here, says that Mr Bro Smythe might be able to get Tommy Brinborough or Harry Yemeni from Reserve. Please say at once if trackers can be sent from Melbourne. Some tracks preserved. Inspector A. Brooke Smith. When trackers arrived, Inspector Smith instructed his subordinates and the locals not to get in their way. The trackers worked best when nobody interfered. Aboriginal trackers were a fixture of lost children's searches and were a key to their success, yet their central role was often covered over in the retelling. What we find is that they really do have to call upon Indigenous people to look for the children because they're the ones with the knowledge of the land and how to track people. But they do still find ways of kind of, you know, sidelining the, the very particular and, and almost scientific skills that are associated with tracking. They instead say, you know, when 
when uh, when the trackers notice something, they say that it's their instincts and their sharp animalistic senses and so on um, that allows them to find it. And what we find with the duff children, when Junga Jinganook and a couple of other trackers, um, Aboriginal trackers, find the children, initially we see them central to the story, but as the story is retold over and over, they become sidelined in the story and it becomes some white settlers who find the children. One of the trackers involved, Tommy Farmer, features as a character in Megan Riedel's play. Yeah, Tommy Farmer, who was a, a judge of a wrong man, um, was brought in sort of later in the game, actually, to, to try and find the, the children. And it got to the point where he just couldn't even do his job because there'd been so many people and horses and it was the middle of winter, it was wet and muddy, and there was literally no trace of where the boys had gone. And they were searching such a wide area as well. So... Yeah, Tommy Farmer was sort of put up as this bit of a scapegoat of, like, why we hadn't found them. A £200 reward will keep the search going. As days turn to weeks, everyone realises the boys would not be coming home. At 12 o'clock on the 13th of September, on going home to dinner, I met with a neighbour named Charles Stewart... While we were talking together for a few minutes, my dog passed us carrying something in its mouth. We paid no attention to it at the time. After leaving Stuart, I observed that it was a boot the dog was carrying. I called him up, and on examining the boot, I found there was a foot in it. We then went and searched the creek, the dog along with us, for about two hours without success. I left Stuart in the hut and went to gather up the tools I'd been working with. The dog followed, and when I was putting past my tools, the dog brought part of a skull. Michael McKay, Illustrated Australian News, 26 September 1867. The following morning, local men McKay... J.H. Wheeler and the leaseholder Riddle lead a search party. But the dog refuses to leave McKay to take the men to further remains. We had not proceeded above 200 yards when David Bryan stepped onto a log and called out, Here they are. The party found the remains of William, the oldest boy. Wheeler and Riddle began to return to Dalesford to notify the police when one of the searchers, Ninian Bryan, finds the other two boys huddled together inside a hollow tree. The children's tree, the one that they were found in, was about eight feet uh, in diameter and about 20 feet high, and it was a mess mate. And um, the hollow of the tree was away from the track that uh, people walked along every day. I still don't believe that they were by themselves, but we'll never really know, we'll never really prove. And that's why there's such a mystery on all this. It is a matter of surprise that from the tree in which they were, they did not hear carts passing, or that the carters did not hear or see the children. But it is probable that they arrived there at night tired and exhausted, and lay down and slept the sleep that knows no waking. 
They were lying with their faces towards the inside of the tree. The smaller one furthest in. The larger lying outside him, as if to shelter him, with his right hand under and embracing the other, who lay partly on his body as if nestling there for warmth. Dalesford Mercury, September 16, 1867. We'll spare you the distressingly graphic description of the bodies that the Dalesford Mercury gave their readers at the time. It's unthinkable today that those sorts of details could be printed. The press was less comfortable with the fact that the boys' bodies were found so close to houses and so to potential rescue. When the photographers went out there to uh, photograph where the children were found for the, for the newspapers, the newspaper rejected it because it was too busy. If the children had been lost for these 11 weeks and lost in the bush and they were so close to settlement, that was no good. As is the practice of the time, the bodies are moved to a cool room at the Farmer's Arms Hotel, still there today. Two days later, the coroner will hold his inquest there. Good and lawful men of Dalesford in the said colony, who being duly sworn and charged to inquire upon the part of Our Lady the Queen, do say upon their oath that Alfred Herbert Berman, William Graham and Thomas Graham were found dead at Musk Creek, September 14th, 1867, having been lost since June the 30th. And the jury are of the opinion that they died from exposure and want. With the inquest done, Dalesford turned to the question of how to bury the three boys that had brought life in the town to a standstill. They'd asked the fathers whether they should, they would have a, a big funeral going through the whole of the streets. They followed the main streets where they went past the uh, police, they went past where the uh, fire brigade was, they went past the miners uh, where they had still been digging, they went past all the churches, they went down the main street where all the big wigs were. And it again begs that question of how much of the, the burial and the funeral was um, politically motivated and how much of it was what the families wanted. I know that the town raised money for the um, headstone and everything, which is quite elaborate. And there at the cemetery, they had um, at least a thousand people just there. I mean, they'd, they'd lined the streets up with people uh, all the way through and they got to the cemetery, there were still a thousand people there. More than a century and a half ago, three little boys wander off into the landscape around Dalesford. And in a way, they're still there, still haunting our country of lost children. I think it has certainly become part of Dalesford's fabric. It's a colonial origin story, at least. It's just one of those things. It's a great tale, and so people are going to keep telling it. I seem to be sort of um, beckoned to that spot. I felt a, a, a sense of injustice because I'd found it lost and forgotten. And as I said, I, I grew up lost and forgotten in a few things and uh, when I was a kid, and it was just a, a feeling that... Um, they actually said, oh, great, there's somebody here that 
likes me and wants to, to do that. So I've, I've done that for 37 years. The Lost Boys of Dalesford was written and produced by Patrick Stokes. The sound engineer was Tim Simons. I'm Kirsty Melville, and I do hope you can join me again next time for another deep dive into the past on the History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.